Greetings and welcome. I'm Brenda C. Epley, and you're listening to the Yoga Discovery Podcast. Each week, I deconstruct words, phrases, or concepts that yoga students may hear in short, usually 10 to 20-minute episodes. Occasionally, I find that some topics require a more in-depth look due to their potentially complex and somewhat layered definition or subject. For example, my podcast regarding the intersection of Buddhism and yoga could not be wrapped up into a a tiny and meaningful 10-minute episode. The focus of today's podcast warrants the same approach of a closer and more lengthy examination. In this Yoga Discovery podcast, I'll explore the nature of the modern guru in the West, where the subject in recent years is frequently surrounded by controversy. This will include addressing the allegations, the misconduct, and criminal activity of a few well-known gurus to determine if the nature of the modern guru is a contradiction when compared to the guru traditions before the rise of modern postural yoga. Some of the content may serve as a trigger for you. And because self-care is always of primary concern and should be a priority, please pay attention to any shifts in emotions or thoughts that arise as you listen to this podcast. And as always, if needed, please disconnect and practice ahimsa. Let's begin by defining the word guru. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a guru as, quote, a personal religious teacher and spiritual guide in Hinduism a teacher and especially intellectual guide in matters of fundamental concern, one who is an acknowledged leader or chief proponent, a person with knowledge or expertise, end quote. I compared the Merriam-Webster definition with other notable sources, such as the Cambridge Dictionary and the Oxford Dictionary of English and the Oxford Dictionary of Word Origins, all seem to agree that a guru is an expert in a particular subject, usually in a religious or spiritual context. Looking at the Sanskrit word guru, gu translates to darkness, and ru translates to dispeller. So guru translates to dispeller of darkness. Gurus are found in many fields, but our focus is on gurus that are found in the yogic traditions. We first turn our attention to the gurus of India, that predate modern postural yoga. Historically and traditionally, and before the modern era, gurus were part of a self-selected and highly respected lineage and served as a living example of the lineage they embodied. Some modern lineages claim that they can be traced to the Vedas. As a reminder, the Vedas are the ancient texts that serve as the foundation of Hinduism. The knowledge of the Upanishads, the texts that comprise the end of the Vedic canon, was highly protected and could only be passed from a teacher to a student. The Sanskrit word Upanishad is translated to sit down near and refers to the student who is seated by the guru while receiving wisdom. A guru's knowledge was passed to their student through an exclusive and secretive oral tradition. The Sanskrit word parampara translates to and aligns with the word continuation and refers to the continued transmission of knowledge that is passed through a lineage from the guru to his shisha or disciple. Here the yoga student is the disciple. 
Specific ancient and classical texts, such as the Vedas, served as the source material that the Guru would interpret. Vishnu, Krishna, and Shiva are believed to have been Gurus who passed their wisdom to their Shishya. And these devotees became Gurus who also served as mentors and passed their knowledge to their students. As this was repeated, a lineage was retained. Aligning oneself to a guru was not a simple task in the period that predates modern postural yoga. For much of yoga's history, a gateway to learning yoga was only through a personal relationship with a guru. The parameters of that relationship varied depending upon the belief system. Before a guru accepted a student, the guru often required a potential student to pass a series of tests or complete various tasks that deemed the student worthy of receiving what was quite often protected knowledge found in ancient sources or tied to a specific lineage. Sometimes a diksha or initiation in some format that was performed by the guru was involved before the guru accepted the student. Bhakti and Tantra practices today often include dikshas. A yogic guru's main objective in the East was and is as a spiritual guide who is the remover of avidya or ignorance while providing a pathway to the divine. The parampara relationship is of a highly personable nature. The guru is a link to the manifest and unmanifest world and illuminates the journey to liberation or moksha. Once the student acquired the knowledge through a revered guru, they then became part of that living lineage or tradition, a very powerful, exclusive, and, and uh, individualized relationship, a sort of osmosis existed and continues to exist in India today between the guru and student, where the parampara is highly respected and honored. Significantly and historically in India, any devotion was and is intended for the teachings as opposed to the guru. As you've learned from my other podcast, context is very important when discussing yoga, and what is authentic for one student may be classified quite differently for another student. Turning our focus to the gurus in the West's modern postural yoga, keep in mind that a handbook for gurus does not exist. You will not find, for example, a, a governing body that licenses modern gurus, absent are exit exams or certifications. The role of a guru in the Western modern context has most certainly evolved from the many centuries of parampara and shishya traditions of India. In the West, anyone can follow a guru who is often transnational and bridges cultures of the East and West. In fact, you can follow a guru without ever having any sort of personal relationship. Students in the West usually don't have to participate in any type of initiation to follow a particular guru, and many modern gurus aren't tied to any specific lineage or tradition that dates backward through the centuries. Modern gurus can be found who don't align their teachings with any one specific religion, and some yogic gurus stray far from the underpinnings of spiritualism. While it is possible to find a guru who is tied to a long tradition or lineage, modern gurus do exist who don't espouse the teachings of ancient or classical texts, while other gurus may cherry-pick from a variety of sources to justify their teachings. 
The shift that is seen when we compare modern gurus in the West to the non-Western and centuries-old approach to teaching yoga in the East is driven by several factors. For simplicity, I'll identify these three vital influences as the three C's, colonization, commodification, and commercialization. Prior to the late 19th century, the West's view of the East was a product of colonization and Orientalist perceptions that propagated stereotypes. From a broad-stroke perspective, audiences in the West at the turn of the 1900s largely learned about yoga through books and essays and photographs of yogis from India. These early images were often staged to reflect an artificial and prejudicial Orientalist lens that was served to the masses for the purpose of advancing white superiority and agendas. Yoga's introduction to the West was propelled by a visit from the Hindu monk Swami Vivekananda, who came to Chicago from India in 1893 to speak at the Parliament of World's Religions, where he affirmed religious universalism and religious tolerance. His address to the Parliament was so well received that numerous invitations were extended to Vivekananda to speak at events throughout the U.S. and disseminate his teachings that paralleled his enormously popular book, Raja Yoga. You can search online, and I encourage you to do so, to view a video of his 1893 speech to the Parliament. Vivekananda's visit to the West and his subsequent publishing of Raja Yoga launched a Western and trans-global interest in the philosophies and traditions of yoga. No longer was yoga seen as exclusive. Vivekananda authenticated the teachings of yoga in such a way that supported the elimination of the oppressive and Orientalist view that was common in the West and opened a doorway that motivated interest in a closer examination of the benefits of yoga. Gradually, a, a sort of deconstruction of yoga began as a growing number of scholars from the West took a keen interest in historical manuscripts and the oral traditions of yoga's long history. The practice of yoga prior to the arrival of Vivekananda was largely esoteric and focused upon individual experiences to affect an inner transformation. Motivated by claims of yoga's health benefits, yoga was taken up by the masses in the West who began an inquiry into yoga's philosophies and traditions. As trade routes expanded, trans-global travel became easier and more accessible. Gurus of the East, such as Yogananda, followed Vivekananda and began arriving in the West. Yogananda was the first guru to settle in America in Los Angeles during the 1920s. Back to India. In 1933, the yoga teacher and learned Indian scholar Krishnamacharya opened a yoga school in the palace of Mysore, India, at the invitation of the Maharaja. Krishnamacharya, often labeled as the father of modern yoga, was driven by his convictions regarding yoga's therapeutic, and healing properties. Krishnamacharya saw a bridge between the holistic benefits of yoga that combined and brought into focus a marriage of the inner and outer manifestations of existence. He is credited with developing or creating many of the asanas that inspired Ashtanga yoga. Counted among his students were BKS Iyengar, K. Patabi Joyce, and Krishnamacharya's first female student, Indra Devi, who was from Russia. Krishnamacharya never traveled outside of India. It was 
Indra Devi, who sparked a yoga renaissance in the United States when she opened a yoga studio in Hollywood in 1948 and counted among her students many famous celebrities. Her best-selling 1953 book, Forever Young, Forever Healthy, was a bestseller. BKS Iyengar, a student of Krishnamacharya and Sidebar, also a brother-in-law, traveled to the United States in 1956 to teach yoga, and like Indra Devi, he authored an international bestseller, Light on Yoga, in 1966. In the early era of modern postural yoga in the West, students had to learn directly from an Indian teacher until books such as Forever Young, Forever Healthy, and Light on Yoga were published. Iyengar and Indra Devi can be credited with the popularization of yoga in the West in the middle of the 20th century. In Light on Yoga, BKS Iyengar wrote, quote, The relationship between a guru and a shissa is a very special one, transcending that between parent and child, husband and wife, or friends. A guru is free from egotism. He inspires confidence, devotion, discipline, deep understanding, and illumination through love." End quote. Back to the second of the three C's that I mentioned earlier, which transformed the role of the guru in the West. Commodification refers to the trade of goods, and for our purposes, commodification is the exchange of goods and services in terms of selling or purchasing yoga. Indra Devi's and Iyengar's popularity led to financial success as yoga teachers, and this success was built upon their delivery of yoga as a commodity. Note that this is no reflection of their ability as teachers or their motivations for teaching yoga. The rising interest in yoga in the West sparked a desire in students who were seeking a more authentic experience to study with revered teachers of yoga in the East. Students who wanted to become teachers sought out the expertise of gurus, and in the 1960s, students of the West traveled to ashrams or to India in search of a guru. Once in India, a student would seek out a guru who would accept them according to what I mentioned earlier, or a student could take classes with a renowned teacher such as Iyengar or Patabi Joyce, another student of Krishnamacharya. Remember that I mentioned that for yoga's long history prior to the modern era, the student and guru relationship was very individualized, often bound together for a lifetime. Patabi Joyce is no doubt one of the most famous teachers of modern postural yoga. He is largely credited with creating the immensely popular Ashtanga yoga that is found in studios throughout the world. His school in Mysore became well known for daily long lines of hopeful students who traveled at often great expense and personal sacrifice to secure a spot in one of his classes. He introduced Ashtanga Yoga to the West during his visit in California in 1975. Securing the authorization of Joyce to teach Ashtanga Yoga was considered to be a rarefied stamp of approval. Iyengar and Indra Devi, like Patabi Joyce, began to commercialize yoga, the third of our three C's, that contributed to the shaping of the modern yoga guru. Where the parampara and shishya relationship had once been exceedingly exclusive, we see the teaching of yoga to Western students in yoga schools become much more inclusive so that the relationship may be void of personalism or is lacking in individualism. 
and the teachings may be open to anyone who is interested in learning. The level of secrecy seen in the East's guru-shishya relationship largely became less common and not always available to Western students. Teachers such as Iyengar, Indra Devi, and Patabi Joyce saw tremendous growth in terms of name recognition, thereby growing their student base, which became global. All three opened yoga studios outside of India. Let us not overlook the tremendous financial incentive for gurus who commercialize yoga. Yoga teacher training programs are huge revenue-generating machines. Add the teaching of a guru to the YTT brand, and the cost of the training quickly escalates. According to Allied Market Research, the yoga market is projected to reach $66 million by 2027. So why do yoga students follow gurus? And what are the benefits of following a single guru in the West? It can be challenging to find an easily recognizable connection to a lineage or historical tradition when students only practice asana in group classes through studios. Some teachers will avoid introducing or including any hints of Eastern philosophy or spiritualism in their classes. In these situations, students who wish to deepen their understanding of a particular lineage or tradition have a, a few choices. They can, for example, attend a, a subject-based workshop or training at studios or ashrams that align with specific traditions. Or they can dive into philosophical texts or videos but this can be challenging without having the often necessary conversations between teacher and student that serve to unpack the complexity of concepts. For a much richer study of the wisdom of a lineage or tradition, an expert is needed who traverses the many, many layers of textual history and philosophy and spiritualism. And remember, the very definition of a guru usually places the guru in a realm of expertise that transcends the knowledge of a teacher. This is where a guru can illuminate the yogic pathway to meet the needs of the individual student. If you believe that, for example, a particular guru is connected to a lengthy lineage and tradition, then it seems reasonable to also believe that the guru somehow authenticates the teachings of that ancient wisdom. Although this isn't a required criterion to become a guru in modern postural yoga, this authentic experience of working from a disciplined methodology and lineage that isn't necessarily new or revelatory is often very appealing to students. Also, some spiritual traditions believe that you cannot reach moksha without the help of a guru. And to some degree, the idea of a guru who is connected to a long and ancient history may well hold some degree of enchantment to the student. Gurus have the ability to both nourish and amplify your practice, providing the appropriate emotional and physical and psychological support along your journey that will impact your life both on and off the mat. This often requires a close relationship with a guru. Some gurus often make personal decisions for their students, and this sense of giving up some measure of control can be tantalizing. Gurus can be found who live in ashrams, becoming a daily presence, while nurturing a connection with their students who also may live at the ashram. A certain level of obedience is generally expected when following a guru, and a student may be required to achieve a level of competency before becoming aligned with a particular lineage. 
BKS Iyengar required students who wished to teach Iyengar yoga to meet specific and very strict eligibility criteria before being accepted into teacher training. These requirements are still in place today. To be considered a teacher of Ashtanga yoga, students are still required to travel to Mysore and study at the K. Patabi Joyce Ashtanga Yoga Shala. So you might be wondering, how does a yoga guru become successful on a global scale in the modern era? Certain qualities are common among gurus who have achieved a global status. The guru must first believe that they are an authority on spiritual theologies and have the ability to effectively articulate what are often complex Eastern philosophies into easily accessible and understandable formats so as to reach a wide audience. In essence, the guru becomes a brand. Their marketability is often derived from their credibility, which is tied to an innovative interpretation of a yoga tradition. This, as you can probably imagine, can be quite challenging. For example, for much of yoga's history, women as well as certain castes in India were excluded from learning the teachings and practice of yoga. Modern gurus on a global scale must balance the belief systems that reflect authentic traditions while offering innovative teachings that minimize exclusivity. Attaching oneself to a long lineage of gurus may be in conflict with the teachings if the guru commodifies yoga. Picture the difference between the guru living in a cave in the Himalayas of India, who is the very essence of the parampara-shishya relationship that I spoke of earlier. Would that same guru give approval of and blessings to a guru in the West living in luxury who earns millions of dollars each year through the commercialization of yoga? Perhaps now you are starting to see the complexities and contradictions that arise when discussing the evolution of the yoga guru in modern postural yoga of the West. Commercialization and commodification are keys to reaching the global audience. In 2016, a study conducted by Yoga Journal and Yoga Alliance estimated that the U.S. could claim 36.7 million practitioners of yoga. The global guru must rise above the competition by offering a product that is somewhat visionary without becoming too radical, and they must have the ability to leverage technology so as to effectively market their brand, becoming something of a capitalist to at least some degree. To my yoga teachers who are listening, you may have a clearer understanding of the need to manipulate social media and the web, for example, if you wish to expand your reach. Now consider the role of technology if you wish to reach a global audience. It's not uncommon for a guru to align themselves with a celebrity who serves to launch their credibility. Indra Devi, who was also an actress, counted among her students Greta Garbo, Gloria Swanson, and Yul Brenner, no doubt securing a reputation as an effective yoga teacher that only served to increase her fame. She aligned her brand with the celebrity brand. The commercialization and commodification of yoga can be a hugely successful revenue-generating and powerful business endeavor for a guru. That power becomes a driving force that can lead to extreme wealth as a result of attracting a huge following. Consider for a moment the personality type that is needed to gain a global audience. You may have tremendous knowledge and training and education, but that will only take you so far if you lack 
charisma. Like any brand, students need to buy into the guru's platform or they'll look elsewhere to meet the needs of their yoga practice. Some may argue that modern global gurus are master manipulators, and it is as a master manipulator that the danger of pitfalls becomes a reality. These pitfalls arise when a guru's ethics are compromised or are altogether absent. So what would this look like, this absence of ethics or moral bankruptcy? And what happens when ethics go out the window? First and foremost, yoga should be practiced in a safe space without fear or judgment. Remember, we see ahimsa in the very first limb of Patanjali's yoga tree as expressed in the Yoga Sutras that date to the 4th century of the Common Era. Ahimsa is the practice of non-harming in thoughts or actions to yourself or others. Ahimsa forms the first branch because it is critical to practice yoga from a state of non-harming before beginning to understand and practice the other limbs of the yoga tree. And naturally, we take yoga off the mat and into our daily lives by embracing ahimsa in every respect. When ahimsa is absent between a guru and student, that safe space begins to evaporate. Interactions with a guru may not be isolated to group classes. If a student lives in an ashram where a guru resides, for example, a safe space still should be maintained at all times in every environment, regardless of who is present. Physical harm arises in the form of inappropriate touching whenever a guru crosses the boundary of the safe space. What is inappropriate touching? Any unwelcome physical contact or physical contact without permission. Physical harm also arises when a teacher or guru gives either verbal instructions or hands-on adjustments that lead to physical injuries. There are also psychological implications when emotional fraud and manipulation occur. For students with a strong spiritual foundation and practice, psychological harm is traumatizing and devastating to anyone on a spiritual path. The very belief systems that are tied to individual identity are shattered, often leaving the student without any foundation that is structured in moral or ethical philosophies and practices. The student-guru power dynamic must be considered. When an imbalance occurs as a result of a student shifting power to the guru, the potential propensity for harm increases with manipulation taking center stage. Gurus who are masters at manipulation are often power seekers who take advantage of the student's vulnerability, often using fear tactics in their teaching. These gurus are highly influential with sweeping authoritative power. So what type of occurrences or climate gives rise to abuses by gurus? Yoga gurus tend to attract an overwhelmingly female students, and most yoga gurus are male. In yoga, gurus encounter students who are infatuated with the very notion of the guru. Male gurus often become father figures or godlike in the eyes of the student. When the power balance shifts in favor of the guru, followers are often coerced to follow and obey rules created by the guru or those in the guru's closest circle. These abuses of power are not limited to female practitioners or adults only. Let's take a look at a few modern yoga gurus that are enveloped in controversy due to their alleged infliction 
of physical or psychological harm. I assure you, the list of these gurus is by no means short. I've selected just a few that have risen to prominence in the West's modern postural yoga. Bikram Chowdhury built a yoga empire in a corporate framework. Bikram, originally from Calcutta, came to America in 1971 and began offering classes in California. Bikram yoga is a hot yoga style in rooms that are heated to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. A sequence of the same 26 postures is the hallmark of Bikram yoga. Students who wanted to become Bikram certified yoga teachers paid at least $10,000 for the training and were required to recertify every three years. The financial implications for this requirement are considerable since most yoga teachers teach yoga as a side profession. Bikram created a cult of celebrity and amassed a personal fortune that, according to the wealth record, places his net worth at $80 million. In 2013, Bikram was accused of rape and sexual abuse, and in 2014, five women brought charges of sexual harassment against Bikram that were settled out of court. In 2019, Netflix produced the documentary Bikram, Yogi Guru Predator, which was a scathing examination of charges against the Bikram yoga brand. Former students alleged sexual assault and discrimination. In 2017, a Los Angeles court awarded $6.9 million to Bikram's former lawyer who had accused Bikram of sexual harassment and wrongful termination that arose from her investigation of sexual misconduct. But she never collected. Bikram fled the United States and is capitalizing upon his brand in other countries. He is considered to be a fugitive by the USA Los Angeles County Superior Court. Bikram continues to have a following in non-US countries where he offers yoga teacher training. I visited bikramyoga.com and clicked on the Meet the Founder link. The page states, contact us to have an experience of Bikram's torture chamber. Hmm. K. Patabi Joyce, as I mentioned earlier, studied under Krishnamacharya in Mysore, India. He is credited with creating the Ashtanga yoga system that is very popular in Western modern yoga studios, and in 1948 established the Ashtanga Yoga Research Institute. Ashtanga emphasizes Patanjali's eight limbs while joining together fluid movements, vinyasa, that are synchronized with the breath. The often challenging postures required teachers to give direct individual assists, either verbally or hands-on, for the purpose of moving the student more deeply into a posture. Assists given directly by Patabi Joyce to a student were seen as an act of honor because he was highly revered as a guru. The power dynamic that shifted to the guru made Joyce infallible. As mentioned earlier in the podcast, beginning in 1970, international students would travel to Mysore to study with Patabi Joyce and learn Ashtanga through the guru at his shala. Patabi Joyce died in 2009. An article written by Govinda Kai and published in The Economist in June of 2009 stated that, quote, among his followers, Mr. Joyce inspired a cultish devotion, but his students were not unaware of their teacher's contradictions. What had happened, for example, to the yogic principle of ahimsa, nonviolence? 
a good number of Mr. Joyce's students seemed constantly to be limping around with injured knees or backs because they had received his adjustments, yanking them into lotus, the, the splits or a backbend. And what about the yogic principle of brahmacharya, sexual continence? Women followers, it was said, received altogether different adjustments from the men, end quote. In 2010, Annika Lucas, who took a workshop with Joyce in New York in 2001, wrote an article regarding her sexual assault at his hands. The article didn't generate a great deal of traction. It wasn't until the Me Too movement that Joyce's former students, such as Karen Rain and Jubilee Cook, published their accounts that exposed Joyce's sexual assaults. Karen Rain's explosive article was published on October 9, 2018, and received international attention. Encouraged by the Me Too movement, Rain's article shined a spotlight on the abuses that occurred when she studied with Patabi Joyce in Mysore in the mid-1990s. Rain provided photographic evidence of the assaults that took place during group yoga classes that depicted Joyce making genital-to-genital contact with Rain. As a member of a Brighton Yoga Foundation panel that was hosted by Yoga International in 2019, Rain said that, quote, He groomed me. He humped me in backbends, standing poses from behind. I saw him humping other students in downward dog. This all happened in plain sight. People are like, how did it happen in plain sight? I think part of it is, is that it was in plain sight, and people use that as a rationalization that it couldn't be sexual assault, because how could it be sexual assault in plain sight? It was normalized, end quote. Karen Rain further stated that, quote, I didn't speak up for 20 years because I didn't believe anyone would listen, end quote. Jubilee Cook, who was also a panel speaker with Rain, studied with Joyce in Mysore in 1997. Cook stated that when she was on her back in supine positions, quote, I remember him coming and getting on top of me and actually looking back and seeing where my genitals were and his genitals were so that he could directly align his penis on top of my genitals. People who say it was accidental, it was very intentional and very deliberate because he would repeat it every day. He placed his hand, I remember him placing his hand on my right breast and twisting me deeper. He didn't have to place his hand on my breast. He would stand behind me in downward dog, and without touching me physically, he would thrust his pelvis back and forth like doing an air-humping action." End quote. Paul Gold, an Ashtanga teacher in Toronto, wrote an article in 2018 for Yoga Journal titled Sexual Assault in the Ashtanga Yoga Community, a mea culpa. Gold stated, quote, as a student who knew of these inappropriate adjustments, I should have behaved differently, and I apologize that I didn't. I rationalized Joyce's behavior. I downplayed students' negative reactions and chose to focus on the reactions of women and men for who these adjustments weren't offensive or weren't given. I wanted to study with Joyce and chose to focus on the good rather than let the bad create a situation where I would have to make hard choices or take a stand, end quote. According to the July 2019 article, Yoga Reconsiders the Role of the Guru in the Age of Me Too, 
that appeared in the New Yorker magazine, Eliza Griswold, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, reported that Patabi Joyce, quote, lay on top of them while they were prostate on the floor and inserted his fingers into their vaginas, end quote. The public outcry that followed the Karen Rain and Jubilee Cooks accounts opened the floodgates for more accusations of misconduct by Patabi Joyce. Even more alarming was that the abuse occurred in a public forum and was witnessed by students who normalized Joyce's behavior by allowing the abuse to continue. Joyce sold the adjustments he made as necessary for understanding the Ashtanga yoga tradition. The allegations splintered the Ashtanga yoga community, many of whom came to Padabi Joyce in search of healing. Yogi Bijan was born in 1929 in what is now a province of Pakistan and moved to the United States in 1968, where he began teaching his brand of kundalini yoga and is often credited with bringing kundalini yoga to the West. Bajan founded the Happy Healthy Holy Organization, known as the 3HO. At the time of his death in 2004, he was the chief religious and administrative authority for the 3HO and Sikh Dharma community. The financial holdings of these entities, which include ownership of the popular Yogi Tea brand, have been very, very lucrative. In 2019, at the age of 76, Pamela Dyson published her book, Premka, White Bird in a Golden Cage, My Life with Yogi Bijan. The book detailed her experience with a guru whom she followed for 16 years, serving as his secretary and assistant. Dyson described the allegations of misconduct against Bijan that she experienced directly or witnessed. After publication of the book, additional victims came forward in an outcry of allegations against Bijan of rape, torture, abuse, coercion, and misconduct, including abuse of children that occurred throughout much of Bijan's time in the United States. The Siri Singh Sahib Corporation, which is the umbrella organization of 3HO and is referred to as the SSSC, began an investigation led by the unbiased consultant group, an olive branch. According to the SSC's website and following the investigation, the SSSC established the Collaborative Response Team to, quote, respond effectively and responsibly to the allegations about Yogi Bijan's conduct. The CRT will act and communicate based on established best practices, transparency, respect, and concern for all involved, and the goal of seeking the truth in all areas of an urgent situation, end quote. The report further identifies the SSSC's commitment to the safety of the community, the establishment of a diversity, equity, and inclusion commission, the development of an inclusion policy, and addressing transparency issues. Amrit Desai was the founder of Kirpalo Yoga that is now located in Massachusetts. Born in India in 1932, Desai moved to the U.S. in 1960 and was a student of Swami Kripal Vananda, who became famously known as Kripalu. In 1983, Desai opened the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Unmarried residents of the ashram were required to practice brahmacharya, which is one of the yamas that form the eight limbs of yoga as found in the Yoga Sutras. Brahmacharya is often aligned with the act of celibacy or the restraint of desires in its many forms. 
1994, Desai resigned as the spiritual leader of Kripalu after amassing a fortune in profits from Kripalu and admitting to adulterous actions. In 1998, 14 former followers brought suit against Desai that focused on the time they resided at the Kripalu Ashram in Massachusetts. According to case filings, Desai, quote, promoted a celibate and aesthetic lifestyle to which he himself outwardly proclaimed to adhere. Plaintiffs allege that the resident members, paying guests, and Kripalu yoga donors were attracted to the facility precisely because of Desai's presence. Desai's picture hung throughout the facilities, his videos ran continuously in the public areas, and his books, tapes, and other items were offered for sale by KYF. Publicly, Desai claimed to be an authentic guru, a teacher and object of veneration, who attains his status in part through several forms of abstinence, including refraining from sexual activity and material pursuits. Plaintiffs claim that during their years at the ashram, they strove to emulate Desai's professional lifestyle in that they endeavored to be celibate or chaste, honest, selfless, and devoted to the well-being of others within the framework of a simple, non-material way of life. In addition, on numerous occasions, Desai allegedly urged the plaintiffs to donate literally all of their possessions to KYF. One plaintiff claims to have donated more than $30,000 and another more than $100,000 in earnings to KYF upon Desai's instruction, end quote. Rather than sweeping the scandal surrounding Desai into obscurity, a visit to Kripalu.org and readers see the organization addresses Desai's resignation and has included the info as an important part of their history. Desai currently teaches at the Amrit Yoga Institute in Salt Springs, Florida. The Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Massachusetts is a vibrant and expansive yoga community with sustained growth. John Friend was born in Ohio in 1959 and in 1997 became the founder and CEO of Anusara Yoga. In Sanskrit, the word Anusara translates to be in the flow with grace. Friend studied with Patabi Joyce, Indra Devi, and teachers of BKS Iyengar before creating his own brand of modern yoga. In 2012, the Washington Post reported that there were 1,500 Anasara yoga teachers worldwide and more than 600,000 students. In February 2012, an ex-Anasara employee publicly posted an anonymous list of accusations against Friend, including allegations of financial mismanagement of employees' pension funds, sexual misconduct with students, and the formation of a Wiccan cult. The post included photos and emails and a memo to serve as proof of the allegations. In March of 2012, Friend removed and distanced himself from Anasora Yoga. According to an interview with Mind Body Green in March of 2020, Friend stated, quote, It was never my intention to hurt anyone or myself. When those things occur, it's important to feel and remember it, and that's how we change. I'm using the pain I feel to step forward into the future in a positive way. I'm certainly not going to repeat the path. I am disassociated from the Anasora organization by our mutual choice, end quote. Anasoryoga.com states that John Friend 
is no longer associated with Anasori Yoga. Friend co-partnered the creation of Sri Deva Yoga and what is called the Bowstring Method, which, according to Bowstring.com, is a synergy of alignment between 10 key parts of the body. At the time of this podcast, John Friend currently resides in Denver. I've chosen to highlight the allegations against Bikram, Patabi Joyce, Yogi Bijan, Amrit Desai, and John Friend because their individual identities are tied to very popular and well-known forms of modern yoga as practiced in the West. Dissecting and analyzing the motivation that propels gurus to cause harm is not within the scope of this podcast. What all of the gurus that I've mentioned have in common is that they were in a position of power and used their charisma to create an imbalance of power in their favor through misrepresentation. Giving physical and psychological consent is compromised when a huge power shift exists. Victims and witnesses often state that they were too afraid to speak out. They were fearful that doing so would lead to expulsion from their yoga community. Women such as Karen Rain and Jubilee Cook were frequently ostracized and on the receiving end of scathing remarks that served to punish and humiliate them. On her website, Rain states that, quote, it took me 20 years to reclaim my agency and overturn shame, end quote. The Stockholm Syndrome offers an explanation as to why victims stayed under the power of a guru once they had experienced or witnessed abuse. As defined by the Cleveland Clinic, the Stockholm Syndrome is a coping mechanism to a captive or abusive situation in which people develop positive feelings towards their captor or abusers over time. Unfortunately, there are many more modern-day gurus that are in the same cohort of gurus that I've mentioned. Time does not permit this podcast episode to highlight the rather lengthy list of individuals labeled as gurus by themselves or others who have allegations against them for various forms of misconduct. I did a quick Google search of allegations of misconduct against yoga gurus. It yielded 1,580,000 results. Even Iyengar, highly revered as a guru, admitted to slapping students when they did not execute a posture to his specifications. Krishnamacharya, remember the father of modern yoga, was described by Iyengar as instilling a fear complex. In a 2005 interview with the Tribune, Iyengar stated that his teacher Krishnamacharya was a hard taskmaster himself. I suppose that I adopted his style. When you are a hard taskmaster, people learn a lot faster. The aftermath of the most recent revelations regarding prominent gurus, much of which has been propelled by the Me Too movement, has prompted reconciliation and restorative justice. Yoga Alliance's sexual misconduct policy, standards, and code of conduct were enhanced as a direct result of the numerous allegations that arose in recent years. One of the outcomes has been the calling into question the integrity of all things yoga, including the examination of, as I am in this yoga podcast, the role of the yoga guru as it relates to our yoga practice. As allegations of guru misconduct spread throughout the yoga world, aftershocks splintered yoga communities. Many studios dropped the name of the guru, such as Bikram, while still teaching the benefits of the practice. However, and this is critical, students often experience conflict within themselves if they benefit from a practice 
that was taught by a fallen guru. At this point in the podcast, it's worth reminding you that there are benefits to following a guru who does not compromise ethics and is not driven by power, wealth, and fame. Gurus can connect us to a lineage that is often labeled as a living tradition. In doing so, they effectively unite the spiritual and philosophical wisdom found in the tradition with our modern world. By working from a disciplined methodology, they will ideally nourish your progress both on and off the mat. When the parampara and shishya relationship is in place, the one-to-one guru-disciple association in harmony, the guru's teachings are on a personal level. In this accord, the guru can work much more effectively in tandem with a yoga student to support the journey to peace and fulfillment. You might very well be wondering how one goes about finding a guru who is not a contradiction and is not primarily motivated by the power, wealth, and fame that I spoke of earlier. Well, this is an excellent question. First, what are your yoga goals? Write these down as they should align with the guru's lineage and tradition. Is the guru part of a specific lineage? And is this even important to you? How will the spiritual aspects of yoga be incorporated into the teachings, if at all? For example, is the guru's spiritual foundation rooted in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, or is non-existent? How is the guru disseminating their knowledge? Do they do so through textual work, videos, live streaming, immersions at specific locations, personal meetings at a designated space with you? Are they innovators who leverage modern technology to connect with you when you cannot share an in-person experiential practice? Some gurus require a diksha initiation that is performed within an environment of strict secrecy. What is the justification for doing so? And does this align with your goals? What is the guru's philosophy and methodology surrounding obtaining consent? In studios in the West, it's common to see some type of tool that serves as a form of consent in terms of giving permission for the guru or teacher to make physical contact. How does the guru quantify pain? And where does it fit into their teaching? Modern yoga is struggling with its identity in terms of inclusivity. Does the guru teach an inclusive philosophy and practice that embraces all racial and gender identities? Carefully examine the long-term financial expectations. What is the product that is being sold to you? Assess the goals and outcomes. Is there a requirement for a long-term financial commitment? This can take many forms, from package training, travel, product purchases, and contributions to organizations in the form of memberships. Do you want to support anyone or anything that profits from a guru's name? Turning our attention to the physical spaces where you may encounter the teachings of the guru, consider if the studio or ashram aligns itself with a guru who has been accused of misconduct. This is very controversial, this action of continuing to support the practice of a guru and profiting from using the name of a guru who has been charged with physical, psychological, financial, or spiritual abuses. Posted photographs or using the name of the guru in both verbal and written communication can serve as powerful triggers for any victim. Research, research, 
research the guru's background. Avoid the blind selection process that is based upon popularity. Dive into their lineage and education. And whether you are in the research mode or have started practicing with a guru, pay attention to your instincts. Victims of misconduct frequently report that they sensed something was off, that something inside them was like encountering the yellow light at an intersection. This caution light that arose out of instinct was frequently ignored by victims. Yoga gurus are responsible for maintaining a safe and welcoming space for all students. Egoism should never be present as it leads to an imbalance of power and compromises the teacher and student relationship. If you are a studio owner or teacher, consider publicizing your policies that clearly state the boundaries of what will not be tolerated and outline the actions that you will take if the boundaries are crossed. Clarify the policies in terms of addressing your teachers, students, and staff. Transparency is key here. Provide a channel for reporting misconduct and be certain that you never put aside your moral and ethical lens. There is a tremendous responsibility that comes with teaching yoga and this is often complicated because the student-teacher relationship is not always clearly defined. If you're a student, familiarize yourself with the studio's policies. If the studio profits from aligning with the controversial guru, ask the owner where they stand and why they still profit from the guru's name. Should you see images of a guru who's been accused of various allegations, ask the owner why the visual triggers are still present. And if you ever witness any form of misconduct, don't be silent. Report it right away to the owner or teacher. As allegations regarding the gurus that I mentioned came into the public domain, many teachers and students revealed that they often turned a blind eye to physical and psychological abuse that became an open secret. Practice satya, or truth. Speak the truth. And remember that yoga is rooted in ahimsa. Remaining silent is in direct opposition to the foundation of our yoga practice. The Me Too movement provided fuel to uncover the gross misconduct of modern gurus in the West who victimized students for financial gain, power, control, and sexual gratification. Too often, these actions rise to the forefront of public outcry only to be minimized or forgotten with the passage of time. The parampara tradition that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast is a centuries-old practice with deep and reverberating psychological, physical, and spiritual impact. The removal of transnational borders combined with technological advancements requires more careful study of the role of the guru in the West's modern postural yoga. When examining the long-standing definition of gurus and teaching yoga to the modern student, contradictions are most certainly evident. Over time, the definition of guru is changing in various contexts when comparing the parampara in the East to the guru in the West. There are tremendous benefits to studying with a guru, particularly in the parampara tradition. If you believe a guru would be of benefit to your practice and goals, be wise and be vigilant in your search. I leave you with a quote by the Dalai Lama. People take different roads seeking fulfillment and happiness. Just because they're not on your road doesn't mean they've gotten lost. 
And that wraps up this week's Yoga Discovery Podcast, sponsored by Just Plain Yoga, located in Pennsylvania. Please like and share the podcast. And remember that if you have any questions or suggestions for future Yoga Discovery Podcasts, please send an email to me at greentreeyogaofpa at gmail.com or visit the Green Tree Yoga of PA website. I'm Brenda Siepley. Thank you for joining me to take a deeper dive into all things yoga. May you be at peace, may you be well, may you be kind and compassionate, and may you be happy.